Hello and welcome again to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Rich, chair of Forefront Festival. Joining me today is Forefront director Nate Mancini. Hello, happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have with us here in this podcast studio at University of Dallas, author and professor and president Glenn Arbery. Great to be here. Dr. Arbery is a featured speaker here at the conference. Dr. Glenn Arbery is a teacher, writer, and novelist, currently working as the president of Wyoming Catholic College. Some of his famous works include the often taught Why Literature Matters, a volume I recall from my own education to become an English teacher. He has written a book, What is a Teacher?, as well as his recent novel, Boundaries of Eden. He has successfully written journalistically, academically, and creatively for decades to the glory of God. Do you feel I'm representing you fairly? You're, you're <laughs> flattering me no end. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, now, before we dive into a conversation... And we that, cut out a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, before we dive into a conversation that I hope is a, a rich one about uh, teaching and art and church and how far from Eden we have come at this point in 2022, um, I want to start with informing our listeners here of uh, the reason we have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Aubrey here is because we're at the Catholic Imagination Conference in Dallas, Texas. We trust that it will be an inspirational, soul-filling time of beauty, thought, fellowship, growth, and love for the Lord. We're just starting here. We've, uh, you know, early on in the in the conference here, uh, huge thank you to Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson and the team at University of Dallas that has made this conference and this podcast recording possible. So, Dr. Arby, what brought you here to the Catholic Imagination Conference in 2022, and uh, what are you presenting here this weekend? I'm presenting uh, just a selection from my latest novel, uh, Boundaries of Eden. And, you know, I'm not, I think probably part of the reason I was asked here is that my son was originally going to be one of the main features. Oh, yes. <laughs> we, we saw yes, it. Right. Will, correct? Will Arbery. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. His uh, Heroes of the Fourth Turning gets the stage reading tomorrow night. Yes. But We're very case, excited about that. Yeah, yeah. That, that'll be fun. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I think it was it was just great to have, you know, father and son here at the same conference. That's so, great. That's great. Beautiful. Um, so uh, it, it is a less than hallowed tradition here on Forefront 360 that I'm going to subject you to something we call the lightning round. Uh, it's just a get to know you exercise for our listeners real briefly. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And if you would just answer them with the first thing that comes to your mind, just a short answer, that would be great. Do you prefer Wyoming, Texas, or Georgia? Wyoming. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, do you prefer beer or wine? Wine. Okay, okay, okay. Um, What, do you drink coffee? Yes. What is your coffee order early on a Monday morning? My coffee order implies that I'm going somewhere to order. Okay. Do you make it at home? I do, yeah. Um, Yeah, coffee with cream. Okay, sounds good. He countered your premise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, If you were given the opportunity to retire anywhere in the world, where would it be? I think Wyoming. Yeah. A lovely place. Yeah. Where where are you in Wyoming? We're in Lander, which is okay. sort of midway, well, two-thirds of the way from the east and halfway up from the south. Mm-hmm. All right, it's cool. right, right in the Wind River Mountains. Mm, lovely. What is the most beautiful church you have ever been to? I think um, the cathedral in Montreal, Sicily. That's the, wow. that's the one that um, really comes to mind when you ask that question. You Beautiful. said the first one that pops into my head. Sicily. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you for following the premise. Uh, do you prefer a Novus Ordo or a Latin Mass? Um, I grew up in the church on the Novus Ordo, so you know I've never really acclimated to the traditional Latin Mass. Cool. Do you have a favorite musical artist? 
I, I love um, Yo-Yo Ma on the cello oh, yeah. with just about anything, particularly the Bach. Beautiful, yeah. Um, who are one or two of your favorite authors who are writing today? Gosh, um, you know, the, the ones that popped into my head are not at all literary. Okay. So, you know, there's a Wyoming writer named C.J. Box who writes about um, things in Wyoming. Cool. Otherwise, I'd have a long list and I have a hard time having okay. anything pop right into my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. Do you prefer J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis? Traditionally, C.S. Lewis, um, but I've come to love Tolkien more and more. Very cool. I'm going to move into our main interview here. You survived the lightning round. Lightning struck many times, but here we are. Okay. So, Dr. Arby, I'm going to ask you a question about the topic of writing. So, Dr. Arby has written a number of nonfiction books on topics around literature, teaching, and education in general. Um, when you begin to write out a more philosophical or an academic like a nonfiction work, or when you begin to write creatively, like your novel, um, what do you have a particular process or a particular ritual when you sit down to write or to edit? And what does that look like? Usually I, I take some time to not, not so much outline what I'm going to do as to set out uh, on some kind of mind map or something mm -hmm. just to get a lot of ideas out there. And then I can begin to look at them and see where I'm going to go with them. More often than not, once I have a, a general idea, uh, I find that what I'm going to say comes out of what I've already written. You know, as I start yeah. writing, it, it begins to develop and take on a kind of um, organic form, I suppose. Uh, and then you can... I can go back and edit it and, you know, make sure that it's all going in the direction sure. that makes some good sense. That's particularly true of the fiction. Um, right. You know, the more academic writing I have, you know, I have a pretty clear thesis I'm headed for, but the fiction tends to unfold more um, spontaneously. Yeah. Very cool. Do you find that you do more, a lot more in the editing in when you're writing fiction? Does the book change forms many times? Many times, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that old story of Proteus in my novels is probably pretty similar. Yeah, right? yeah, very cool. Uh, so before we get into greater detail on the content of some of your past writing, uh, I can't help but begin here. We're at the Catholic Imagination Conference. Uh, I know that you grew up uh, Protestant and in the South, in Georgia, correct? Yeah, right. Uh, would you briefly tell us about your journey of faith, how you grew up, and then what brought you to the Roman Catholic Church? It's, um, I think, a, probably a pretty common story for my generation. Okay. Um, I grew up in a small Methodist church in a small town in middle Georgia where, you know, we had Sunday school and I read the Bible and, and so on. And I, I think I had a very uh, conventional faith. Mm -hmm. um, my, my parents would go to church uh, on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, um, sometimes to the Wednesday night prayer service. And I, you know, I, I, I can't say that I was a, ever very ardent as a child, mm -hmm. but um, there was a great deal of, of kind of emphasis on, on science during the era when I was growing up in the 50s right. and 60s. You know, this was the Sputnik era. This was the sure. space race. The scientist was a, you know, a supreme figure in those days. And so when we got to um, evolution in 10th grade, it just seemed to me to cancel out everything I had you know, learned in sure. Sunday school. 
So I, I pretty much uh, lost my faith, you know, in my mid-teens or early teens. And it took a lot of um, personal, you know, trial and a lot of reading to, uh, to come, start coming back toward faith at all. But Flannery O'Connor had an influence in that. Um, On so many. Yeah, and you know, I mean, she was our middle Georgia writer, mm -hmm. but um, you know, I didn't necessarily recognize the figures that she described because uh, mine were much more conventional and less <laughs> less grotesque, I'll say. But um, you know, where she gets, you know, the the kinds of crises you come to, those mm -hmm. those were recognizable, right? And that worked on me for, I'm not going to say it was immediate, you know, so it took me, I would say, five or six years reading. Um, I was teaching in a community college. I was reading uh, Joseph Pieper, reading Aquinas, reading um, Dante in a new way, you know, and all those things, I think, began to converge. And then when I went to the University of Dallas for my Ph.D. in 1977, it was even going there was a was a turn, and so I started my uh, instruction in the faith when I got there. Mm. So that was you know that's kind of it. Uh, it wasn't a St. Paul on the road to Damascus kind sure. of thing. A, a theme that we're we're we haven't been at the Catholic Imagination Conference long, but the theme of the yeah the the transcendental uh, beauty coming out of deeply uh, you know Orthodox Christian literature that is not maybe explicitly slap you in the face, churched you know is it, it, a powerful force. Very cool. Yes. So one of the clearest differences between Catholic theology and some Reformed or Evangelical theologies is the uh, efficacy and necessity of sacraments to confer grace. Mm -hmm. We talk about the usefulness of sacramentals to sanctify us in Catholic theology. Can you speak at all to the idea of reading or writing as a sacramental or as engaging in literature as a sanctifying agent? It's, it's a very interesting question. Largely, I think, um, the way I would go into this is, is to think about what um, initially drew me toward Catholicism in particular. And it was specific, I mean, it was the sacrament. It was, it was the Eucharist. Now, I didn't even know that word at the time. Right. But it was, it, it was this whole idea that um, something that you, that you think or that you image uh, is is actually what it is an image of, you know. Um, it was this kind of carrying over from, I guess, from the imagination or the whatever you think about the being of the poetic image into the fullness of, you know, of communion with God. Um, that was, I think, a real draw to me. And, it, and I think it uh, influences the way that you understand what what literature literature can do yeah in other words it takes you into an imagined experience and the more fully you can give yourself to that if you know if the author is sort of being true to the truth of things the, the more it can take you into into that sort of experience that you might not find so readily you know in, in you know in, in so-called real life right so it's a um, I think it has a powerful agency in that regard. Yeah. yeah. 
I feel like your your own life, and I could say I don't know about you, Nate, but in my myself, I mean, in engaging with particularly fantasy literature for me mm-hmm. has has been a uh, I you go through a journey from the beginning to the end of of working through uh, a work of fantasy, and I feel like it, there is. A, I'm air quoting a lived experience in that that you know mm-hmm. changes us you know kind of uh, in, in our soul and I think that's powerful you were mentioning how Flannery O'Connor was um, instrumental for you and, and some other authors um, perhaps authors of faith and in your estimation, what is the Christian church's job or the Christian church's responsibility in uh, creating and preserving and teaching literature? Um, it's a great question. Uh, Newman r- wrestled with it, you know, when he was, uh, you know, starting the university in Ireland, mm-hmm. and you know, literature was a question, and it was so much of a question because uh, literature is so often about sinful things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, you know, very forthrightly, you can't have uh, a literature, a sinless literature about sinful man. <laughs> if you're a gonna, great quote. Yeah. If, if you're going to talk about what um, human beings are like, then this is what they're like. And, right. you know, you can leave it all out. You can airbrush, you know, um, the reality of things, but as soon as you they get out of the classroom and into the real world, they're gonna they're gonna run into those things. So for for Newman, it was a matter of you know teaching uh, what's what's best, what's greatest in the in the tradition of literature, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, Homer or you know Shakespeare. Yeah. Doesn't have to you know it doesn't have to be promoting Catholic doctrine all the time. Yeah, it has to be true to what human beings are. And of course, ultimately, the truth is is going to be found, you know, in the fullness of faith. But um, what does what does it look like uh, when that isn't present? You know, mm-hmm. what is it? I mean, I, I'm teaching Homer right now, and I think about well, a lot of the questions here are answered by Christianity. But right, what does it look like <laughs> before that? You know, yeah, yes. What does it look like before somebody? Convert or before someone, you know, what's what's the road into into the kind of questions and concerns that um, really do ultimately lead to faith? So anyway, that's yeah. I, the, the church's responsibility. Well, um, should should the church, you know, have a have an index? A church library. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I might be on it. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, right. Um, I don't know. I, I think the the question of what you regulate in, in terms of um, proving and disproving literature is gets mm-hmm. very complicated very quickly. Yes. And it depends on what age reader you're talking sure. about. Yeah. Right, and probably that has different different structures institutionally, right? Like a a gathered church may create or promote literature in, in a particular way, but I, I would imagine that you're trying to to help kind of all spheres figure out how to do that, whether that's in the classroom or even in the home. Mm-hmm. You know, just just parents like exposing their children to the great books. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I, I love the idea, referencing uh, Homer there and that kind of like that the the pre Christian, if you will, questions being mm-hmm. asked there. Uh, it's so important to remember too that like. Uh, our Lord is Lord of all things, you know, even things that don't have the, the, the mark of, mm-hmm. you know, the church upon them. But, um, and in, in your, uh, your lecture at Hillsdale on why literature matters mm-hmm. and, and in the book as well, um, you talk about, uh, the idea of, like we say, um, great books or, or the older, mm-hmm. older stories like Homer and Shakespeare, like you said, um, giving us this power of being being able to move past provincialism and being limited or stuck in the time in which we live and kind of plagued by the uh, uh, the things that seem so important to us in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, could you speak a little bit to the literature's power to expand us past uh, the present moment? I think so many people come into reading something with assumptions about how people ought to act and you know how they what what's important to them. Mm-hmm. So just to take the Iliad again, you know, sure. which is happens to be what I'm teaching right now. You know, this is a world where uh, the honor of the warrior is uppermost and how you're considered by your uh, your peers and others uh, what kinds of things you have to show for the respect in which you're held. Um, all this uh, is recognizable to the contemporary student, but only through a process that, of kind of estrangement. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, uh, corporate leaders don't necessarily uh, have captive women that are their war prizes, you know. Sure. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah, we hope so. Well, that, you know, they might in some way, right? But, um, you know, the idea of the trophy wife mm-hmm. suddenly takes on a different, you know, resonance when you look at Homer. Sure. But I think that um, entering into these past works and just, you know, taking in the imagination of what it might be like to uh, to confront a Greek god um, is 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 an illuminating experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, our our tendency as as Catholic readers is going to be to want to you know explain them away or to you know say you know you just have to read this without them in it and then you'll see what's actually going on. But they're they're characters in the poem. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to take in that imagination? You know. What does it mean to have that that kind of experience of you know a sudden kind of onset of of something that you recognize as divine, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to uh, the ordinary character of your experience? Yeah, and we're not we're not looking for that enough, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it when I'm going down the road and I see a hawk over on my right mm. flying along. I think, ah, oh, it's a great sign because I've just been reading about bird signs at home. <laughs> 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 I, I know God wouldn't miss the opportunity, you know. <laughs> the, I, I think, too, that our, um, I, I'm just, I'm inspired by, uh, again, by hearing you say this, just the fact that the, we, uh, other than perhaps um, in church, we in our present like you said like our kind of like post 
scientific or our highly scientific culture that we live in um, that is so controlled by you know the internet and new media and all these things like outside of church there are very few places where we engage with anything that is supernatural or mysterious or something and and for those that are not churched um i, I would assert that some of these great ancient bo books are really one of the the only places where we engage with this these ideas of like what would it be like you know, the concept that humanity is not top dog in the universe, you know, like the secular perspective mm -hmm. that like we really are the most intelligent beings in the universe, mm -hmm. you know, and, and grappling. I'll get to this later, but I, I'm a high school teacher and I often in public school and uh, the I often butt against um, just the, the very commonly held uh, understanding that like there there is nothing higher or more um, elusive than hum human thought and uh, it's just just so interesting to me yeah I mean ju jumping off of that I was listening to a secular podcast and they were talking about how you know people used to be very conscious of like signs and portents like you, you were even sure. des describing uh but but he was like he was like yeah now like people just kind of go to church clock in clock out and like don't give it a second thought but it used to be that like people had to have their religion be a part of their life because they were literally relying on god for their sustenance and their right. life and it's like well, yes, that, that, that is indeed still the case. We just forget it because we have yes. so many things that we use to uphold ourselves. Um, given our, our technology and our freedom, we, we, we often like forget God. And it yeah. seems that these ways of connecting to the supernatural and the divine um, through the great books or otherwise are extremely important for us to kind of shake ourselves out of these like self-salvation strategies that we self-salvation i like that right? yeah <laughs> and of course wendell berry uh yeah. you know who you listeners probably know right right writes about that all the time that the fact that like our separation from uh like of course he writes in the context of agrarianism but mm -hmm. the fact that like when you are literally drawing your sustenance from something that you cannot control which is the earth and the weather yes. and stuff but now we live in climate controlled boxes where everything you know and all that and that is very interesting how that yeah, plays yeah. out you think we've well, tamed it all i mean you know the there's a contemporary philosopher charles taylor who writes about yes. the, the disenchantment of the cosmos mm. being the condition of our age mm -hmm. um you know the for the greeks of the homeric era the, the rivers were gods yeah. you know the the earth was Gaia, you know, all these things. So the, every, everything had a kind of um, personification that gave you a relation to it instead of it being, you know, in a essentially other consciousnessless. Right. Um, An inanimate. Inanimate, yeah. you know, and you're the only, you know, animate thing around. Right. I'm, I'm even, I, what a I, boring I, way to live. Really? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So you know, start talking to your river, you know. Yeah. That's the idea, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's Dr. Aubrey's advice for our listeners. <laughs> Talk to them. <laughs> Just pause this podcast. Stop what you're doing. Right. Walk out to the nearest body of water. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forget talking to your plants. You know, yeah, talk to yeah. your river. Right. 
so we were talking about uh, Rich in his last question was talking about the, this idea of like the tyranny of the present moment and how uh, literature can help us get out of that. And I was curious, just for you personally, um, how how has that occurred for you in in the reading of literature? How has it kind of gotten you out of that tyranny of the moment and maybe um, allowed you a greater perspective on the calling in your life? Yeah. Um, some of the earliest things I read when I was in college that really began to do that were, um, you know, in a world literature class I had. Uh, I had a, a teacher who I think could probably have been certified, you know. Any, anyway, <laughs> he would give assignments of such astonishing length that, you know, <laughs> so, for example, Don Quixote uh, over the weekend, you know. Wow. And, and I was absurd enough myself to do it. So I spent yeah. the entire weekend reading Don Quixote, um, you know, which, which becomes transformative. Sure. Um, or, or having to, you know, write a paper on Othello or, or something. Yeah. Uh, Shakespeare's, you know, whether it was you really, and you're, if you're scared of your professor in the sense that, you know, you know that this is going to be read with, yeah. with great care. Um, you know, you read with great care, and and that begins to to take you into you know a place that um, doesn't exist you know uh, in the in the world right around yeah. you. But that it's you, transportive. It is. It transports yeah. you into some you know to a different reality that that then begins to illumine the one that you're in. Yeah, that's beautiful. So so kind of speaking at these, um, this is actually perfect because kind of speaking about that that. Uh, being scared of your professor and and, and choosing uh, reading reading great books and being transported by them, uh, like I said, um, I personally am a public high school English literature teacher. Uh, quite a few of our regular listeners here on Forefront Three Hundred and Sixty do work in education in various settings. So, my question for you, uh, Dr. Arby, is: Do you have any advice in particular for teachers or literary artists in how they can open kind of that portal or that uh, you know that time travel? to the transcendent for uh, students that are so caught in the temporary and in the self-centered? Well, uh, my first advice is that when you start teaching a piece of literature, you don't go first to the ideas. Okay. You, you know, you have to take the student into the experience of that work um, imaginatively. This was, this was done with, um, terrific skill by, by my teacher at the University of Dallas, Louise Cowan. Um, you would find yourself, she would almost, just, you know, sometimes she would just retell the story in a, in a spellbinding way that would, you know, you would find yourself uh, more and more deeply into, in the imagination of the writer, which wasn't to take you to um, certain concepts that you, you know, you take away from, from this story or this mm -hmm. poem but you know an imaginative experience which was was much richer than than anything conceptual you could necessarily say about it so um yeah first advice don't be so smart that mm -hmm. that you you think you don't have to um kind of try to recreate you know the experience yeah you know, of, of a wonderful metaphor or of, of something that's going on in the, you know, in the course of the story or the play or the novel. It's almost like don't skip any steps. Don't skip yeah. any steps and 
give your imagination over to it. Your imagination is a wonderful faculty, you know? It includes your intellect, you know? It includes your senses. And if you can really learn to exercise it with attention and alertness and care, then you, you find yourself learning more than, you know, just deriving a few notions it's gonna ever give you. Right. Kind of a follow-up on that as well. What books would you say, like if you had kind of, if you had maybe like, we could call it like your own personal canon, like what books would you recommend, or maybe you have recommended in your various, you know, uh, positions in leadership in, in education as well. What are the books, what, the, mm -hmm. the key, maybe a couple like, you know, books that you would say that we should all engage with, or those of us that are in teaching or, or guiding roles like that we should teach? Well, you know, this, this sounds like a repetition by now, but a Homer was a breakthrough for me when I went to graduate school. Right. So Iliad and the Odyssey, certainly, uh, Sophocles, Theban plays. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna give you the anthology. Yeah. Do it. Do it. <laughs> um, you know, of the of the great epics. You. I mean, you have to. You have to read the Aeneid. You know. You have to read Dante. You have to read Milton. You have to read. I think Moby Dick, and people don't see Moby Dick in this light. And I've, I've, yeah. it was interesting. I encountered this at a high school where I was giving a lecture, and they were thinking, Moby Dick? You know, next to these other ones? I, yeah, you should read it in that light. You know, uh -huh. this is, I was just hearing a um, panel on translation where they're talking about high and low language, you know, and how, right. you, how you get at the kind of balance there. Mm -hmm. Melville, Melville does that, and anyway, so. Superb book, um, Russian novelist. You know, I mean, gosh, I could I could go on the rest of the morning about you know what what we should all read. Dostoevsky. Uh, Dostoevsky, um, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina's. Yeah. Superb War and Peace, of course. Yeah. But anyway, um, in a weekend. Yeah. yeah just pick one each <laughs> oh, weekend. Right. Yeah. Right. And make sure it's longer than a thousand pages. That's good. Oh, yeah. So you don't have any leftover time that mm, weekend. Yeah. That right? would be unfortunate. But you know, um, Faulkner's novels, um, Flannery O'Connor. You know. I'm, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, actually, just as uh, just a more of a personal question for me, I uh, I direct the uh, the theater at my high school. Is there are there any um, when I say contemporary? Let's say uh, I guess what I mean is more like maybe nineteenth century to the present. Are there any um, more contemporary plays that you would recommend that I could look into uh, working through with my theater company? Does my son get royalties if I? Uh, yeah, hey, I would. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that is absolutely. Um, would he allow us no, to do one yeah, of his <laughs> yeah, no, I'll have to talk. You can do it at your house. Um, they don't just leap to mind. I have yeah. to say, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that it's been a great age of theater. You know, I don't particularly like Eugene O'Neill, for example. Yeah. Um, Tom Stoppard is always interesting. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty heady stuff, and sure. Um, yeah, where, where's the kind of central grappling with things? I, you know, and I, it may just be that I don't, you know, have a good enough awareness of of contemporary theater. Sure. What do What do you like to do? Well, my favorite uh, modern playwright is Arthur Miller, so I, I'm a uh, 
I'm, I'm a big fan of the crucible um i really like all my sons as mm -hmm. well so th mm -hmm. those two i would have to say are my favorite 20th century plays um i've talked about this on this podcast before but i i also am i've been i was very struck by uh, uh john logan's play red which is about mm -hmm. mark rothko and, hmm. I, don't, I haven't i haven't seen oh, read that. Look, yeah. I, I recommend Thank you. it yeah yeah but um this isn't about me, though. Um, but um, it's a conversation. Yeah, yeah, no. Absolutely. Rich has also written. <laughs> you don't want to read those. Um, come to forefront artist circle. You can hear those. Um, so, so another kind of question for you. So, how how has your work as so? I, I assume that you take these kind of pillars of your um, kind of value for literature and, and these things into your role. Uh, now, so um, so you're still teaching while acting as as president. I just have one class usually. Cool. Uh, in in your role as president of a college, like, are you able to integrate these these values into what's going on at Wyoming Catholic? Well, uh, you know, the curriculum at Wyoming Catholic is is very good, and it you know it doesn't doesn't need a lot of supervision in that regard. That's great. Um, one way that I bring these things in is I write a weekly. Uh, sort of email column that we send out to all of our, all the people on our email list. Right. These are often picked up in the imaginative conservative, you know, so they're, but they're usually reflections on something that's going on culturally that has, you know, that our curriculum might have some bearing on. Great. So that, that's been a, a real opportunity. Sort of, you know, to write something on a weekly basis that tries to articulate uh, you know what we're doing, what the connections yeah. are with this this kind of uh, background in education with the contemporary issues. Beautiful. And then, and then finally, just another another kind of education question for you, if you don't mind. Um, so, what are your thoughts, briefly, on explicitly Christian or Catholic education versus like an American public model? Um, do you feel that public schools can still serve? the Christian young person or the Catholic college student? I think so. Um, sometimes I think if you're having to work harder as a public school teacher um, to tell the truth about what you're teaching, mm -hmm. that might be a more uh, compelling witness than if you're in a place where, you know, everybody knows this is a, you know, we're, sure. we're a Christian This is part of the fabric. This is part of the fabric. And you don't you don't make any you don't have to make any intense personal effort to try to get across you know the the truth that you see. Um, I mean, I'm, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm not, yeah, no, I, I think so. I just, I just think that sometimes the uh, the more difficult context elicits the more powerful witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's encouraging and beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time with us, Dr. Ivory. Uh, it's been an honor to talk to you. Uh, if any of our listeners have further questions for you or, or wanted to contact you, is there a place that they could best learn more about you or maybe make contact? Sure. Uh, WyomingCatholic.edu. That's our college. Awesome. And, and if I could, I actually had uh, just just one other um, question that popped oh, into please, my head. Oh, please, yeah. If, I know that you've written several books are there any books that you have in your head that you think I would love to write this book if I only had, you know, the chance or the time or the source? Oh, great question. Uh, what, what what would be the next book you would love to write? Well, I'm writing my third novel right now. Um, the, here's the here's the catch. 
I never talk about it until I finish it. <laughs> okay, okay. So we're not going to get an exclusive reveal no. here on Forefront 360. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's... Just, just half a synopsis. Just... <laughs> how, how long have you been working on that one? Uh, you know, since I've finished the last one, more or less. Uh, I'd say a year or two. You know, it's, it's hard to get time. You know, yeah, when you're, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I was uh, just as a comment. Uh, I recently picked up Boundaries of Eden and I was, I was, because I, I had ordered it online and I didn't, you know, see the, the thickness of it or whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm so, maybe this is just what I pick up to read, I'm not sure, but I'm used to contemporary books being pretty uh, small. And I was, I was very, uh, I was impressed that Boundaries of Eden is a, is a, a girthy tone. So. I, was, I was sort of impressed when it showed up too. I didn't realize, <laughs> didn't realize how long it was. What's yeah. the font size on this? Yeah, that's beautiful. Awesome. It has physical as well as metaphysical depth. Yes, absolutely. Good stuff. Um, well, great. Again, uh, and thanks for that question, Nate. That was yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you here on 4 from 360. Listeners, if you like this conversation, you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to 4 from 360 on your favorite podcast app. And let us know what you thought about this episode over on Instagram at ForefrontFest. Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.